What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. Do you know what I'm talking about? It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Just a whole lot of shouting here in studio. You're listening to the Is Our Children Learning segment of the Draw Large Radio Show, brought to us by Straight A Academy. Innovation in education is their mantra. So whether you need help with standardized testing or your kids need help with standardized testing, subject tutoring. Um, SAT prep? Yeah, that would be standardized testing. Yeah. No, it's just a little pregnant pause. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> just trying Subject to Subject tutoring. <laughs> uh, private tutelage. Yeah. That's basically the outsourcing of homeschooling to this place. Oh. And then, of course, see, you got to start this earlier than you think. <clears throat> and it might have been useful for us to know about this before we started looking for colleges for my son who's off to college next year. <laughs> it's called They'll Help You Find the Right College. College Consulting. Among oh, other very things. Very nice. Yeah. Wow. So they'll help you figure out what you want to get out of college, and then they'll help you find what colleges will help you get what you want type of thing. It's all that and more available at straighta.com. That's straighta.com. We continue now with Anne-Marie Banfield of Cornerstone Action and Jane Ryan, who is a- Eversby. Eversby. I'm divorced. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, which one do we have? Ryan. Ryan is my main name. Okay, so we have Jane. My apologies, Jane, no, no, Jane Ryan, uh, who is a uh, a mom who understands the special ed process, and we're chatting about that here this morning. So you were about to say something when I said we're going to run out of time. Let's go to break. Um, one of the things that I think you have to be cognizant of. I know you said that um, you spend fifty million dollars approximately on special education services. Um, I do know there is a judge in West Virginia who is approving everybody for SSI, SSDI, um, and people were looking at his decisions because they said, how is it that this judge is approving everybody at 99%? And <laughs> the judge went back and said, I have to because they were not given a proper education because they were not given a standard education, making them marketable for the job market. Um, they are eligible because they did not get a marketable education. And any kid on um, – in special education who is not getting a standard education would be eligible for SSI. And if you're talking a population of 18% or higher, potentially, um, that would be a portion of the, the available job market just going on to services after graduation. Well, I might, I might quarrel with that because, as I understand it, the whole point of special education is to provide students with various needs and challenges with the resources they need to um, uh, learn in spite of those needs and challenges. So as I understand the purpose of special ed, it's to make sure that little Johnny and little Susie, whatever their disability, can read, write, do arithmetic, and all that fun stuff by the time they graduate on a level that should allow them to function in society. That would theoretically be the purpose of it, but it has... What happens is a child who goes on to special education, who gets a special education label, is not entitled to a standard education. So in other words, they are not required to meet general education standards. They are entitled to a free and appropriate education. Now, free and appropriate... Yeah, that's defin- a term that uh, you know, a certain person who no longer works for the Manchester School District you know, would toss around like a, a buzzword, and it becomes the reason why, uh, you know, it's always coupled with a, a less restrictive environment as the mm-hmm. argument for why they're putting certain kids in certain classes and mainstreaming and, you know, uh, 
frankly, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, you know, forcing disruptions to everybody else in the classroom. I mean, we've got kids in this city who go in, they go into some kind of a meltdown. And the answer to the meltdown is you have to remove every other kid in the classroom until the meltdown is over and figure out what to do with those kids for a half hour, 45 minutes uh, or whatever it takes before the kid who has the meltdown is done. Can't remove the kid. Wow. But you have to remove the rest of the entire class. And I sit there and I look at that and go, how does that work? I don't think that's an appropriate response to the behavior. Maybe it is or maybe it's not. But I'll tell you, that's what we get put up our nose when we start asking questions about what's going on in some of the schools when we get complaints. Correct. And I think that in many cases, behavior is communication and what is going on with that kid because they get blamed for the behavior. But something could be happening that provokes the behavior that could easily be resolved. For example, kids with sensory issues sometimes have tags in their clothes. I cut all the tags out of my kids' clothes, but some of them have that type of response to having tags in their clothes. So you have to figure out what the root cause of the behavior is because if that behavior is happening repeatedly, why is it happening? You have to look at that and say, okay, why is this happening? Is it going to be resolved by something as simple as that? Is there something going on? I mean, some of the special education students don't have positive relationships with the teachers because the teachers don't believe they should be there and they antagonize the kid and get them to act up. Um, Some teachers are great and they do a really excellent job. And so what they need to do is look at the teachers who are doing a good job and what they're doing that's positive because we have positive behavior intervention, which is actually a class that teachers can take, but it's an optional class through CIRISC in the summer. And that is a a class to teach them how to manage behaviors like that in a positive way so things like that don't happen and don't happen on a regular basis. Are are there any limits, uh, you know, to what uh, public school teachers in individual classrooms should be expected to be able or have to do to accommodate an individual kid? I guess what I'm asking is, has the system gone too far in providing accommodations to an individual child at the expense of virtually every other child in that classroom and the ability of the teacher to interact with them. Well, I think also you have to look at why it's happening. If this is a kid who really needs a one-on-one aid and they won't give a one-on-one aid, that could be an issue. If it's a kid who requires a residential placement and they're not giving the residential placement because they don't want to put the kid in the other environment because they're arguing least restrictive. Least restrictive is something that usually the school is using to retain the child when the parents don't want the child in that particular school. They want the kid to get a residential placement with one-on-one help. But those schools also are not general education curriculum normally. They're teaching them what they call or consider life skills, which means they're still getting knowledge, but it's at a lower level. So you might have a kid who's in grade 11, 12, who's learning how to read at a sixth grade level. Now, I'm, I've got a question from somebody in the audience. Ask her about vocational rehab in high school. It is not happening, which is one of the reasons why these kids end up on SSI. I, I don't know. I, that's just a question that I got from a member of our. So the question is, audience. why isn't vocational rehabilitation happening at all? Um, well, I guess the question might be, it says, ask her about vocational rehab in high school. It is not happening, which is one of the reasons why these kids up up. And she she just said yes. To okay. Whatever you said. Um, as I understand it, the vocational rehabilitation is a curriculum that's supposed to be offered in the junior year. They are steered away from that because they do segregated learning. Um, there are many practitioners. What is segregated learning? Who does segregating learning, and what is it? So essentially, segregated learning is where you have kids in a school building, but they're in a life skills room. They are not a part of the general student body. 
So they are separated from the general student body and they're in a separate room. So that is what is considered segregated learning. What has been your experience? With vocational rehabilitation? I guess so. Okay. Um, so they, It's just so much easier when people call. But no, we've got <laughs> Facebook. She said yes. Okay. We, we've got Facebook and we've got Twitter and they would rather tweet or Facebook than call. There are many people. Or they're at work and they can't. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> there are many people like Temple Grandin. And if you don't know who Temple Grandin is, I suggest you look up her story because it's very inspirational. Um, she said we need to allow kids to not take algebra if they're never going to pass it because it's ridiculous and go into vocational rehabilitation or actual skills training that is meaningful. So life skills training that is vocational rehabilitation in the public school system is largely uh, moving recycling material around stuff like cans. That is not a marketable skill. I don't think that's appropriate. There are many kids. There was a nurse named June Carter back in the day who worked with kids who had mental and um, intellectual disabilities. And she realized that these kids can be taught to do things. They might not be brain surgeons, but they can be taught to do things like collect trash or um, have something that is a marketable skill. And right now, um, they're right. They're not getting vocational rehabilitation in the sense that they're not learning to become a mechanic. They're not learning something that is going to help them get a job. They're moving cans around. So it seems to me that you're telling me that special ed is more along the line of figuring out how to get kids from one day to the next and not actually educate them. I would consider it a form of babysitting. So and that's that's kind of that's kind of the the concerns that I get a lot of times from parents. I get parents who say, you know, my child might have Down syndrome, but they are capable of learning, and so they might not be capable of learning uh, on the same level as other children in that age group, but they're capable of learning something and they're not being challenged to, to what they should be challenged. I've to. had parents tell me they pulled their kids off of IEPs because the IEP was excusing their lack of performance and making it right. okay because of their disability that they yeah. weren't actually learning. And so they said, well, you know what, we'll take them off the IEP and we'll just have to work with them in a regular environment where they are expected mm. to put forward the effort to learn the material. And I would agree with that because my son was testing in below 20th percentile on standardized testing in mathematics, and I took him to private math tutoring, and within a year they had him in the 99th percentile. Right. So, uh, you know, we I think we over-identify in Manchester. 18% of the population is, is coded special ed. I think Dr. Vargas thinks we uh, over-identify. And I, my experience from a lot of the conversations that I've had and I don't know how big a percentage this is, but we got Parker Varney, right? Mm-hmm. Parker Varney has reduced the number of referrals it made to special ed in the last year by a third. And it actually did something I'm told is unheard of. And it, it's tested it's either three or six kids out of the special ed services because of how they're teaching or what they're teaching. Um, and they identify kids who are struggling in something and they get them the help they need. And they identify kids who can run a mile and they give them a mile and a half to see if they can get there. Right. So I wonder how much of what we do in special ed is sort of a self-defeating, self-fulfilling prophecy because we're maybe using um, poor methods or systems to teach math or English or reading and writing. And we're creating um, we're creating kids who can't function. 
versus would, uh, yeah, uh, be, not because they have a disability, a learning disability, but because ain't nobody can do the crap that's being put in front of them. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> well, no, and Parker Varney is actually proving that yeah. with what they're doing. I mean, you're telling me that you reduced and, and Parker Varney is not, you know, uh, green acres. And what I mean by that is demographically, you know, it is it is on par with most of the schools in this district with its socioeconomics, its racial, ethnic composition and everything else. It's, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's a, quote, inner city school. There's a big push for inclusion and there's a reason for it. I can tell you that if you have kids who are in a segregated classroom, who have behavioral issues, who have learning issues, who have other things going on, no one's learning because right. if you look, there have been studies done that show inclusion over a 30-year period helps students because, number one, it gets them used to people with disabilities because they're out there in the real world. Uh, number two, if other people in your general environment are striving, you want to strive. It's kind of like people who do sales. Someone gets a big sale, you want a bigger sale. So the students get sort of motivated and pushed by each other because peer pressure, frankly, is a greater pressure than a parent pressure. Well, and I, and I think there's some truth to what you say, but I also think that the people put in the environment have got to be capable of that striving. And I think oftentimes there are there are mismatches. And by the way, one of the big things that they've learned at Parker Varney from what they're doing, they've reduced their disciplinary issues by 55% over that same year, which tells you what? Tells me the board kid that, you know, the smart kids are no longer bored and acting up and the frustrated kids are no longer stymied and acting out. We have uh, Judy in Manchester on the line. Good morning, Judy. Hey, Rich. How you doing? Very well. How are you? Good. Um, I think you know who I am. I have a, a daughter, uh, Camille, who's a um, a sophomore in uh, one of the Manchester public high schools. Oh yes, now I do and, know who you are. Good morning, Judy. Yeah, <laughs> you don't sound yeah, like yourself I, on the phone here. <laughs> uh, well, anyways, what what I wanted to talk about was um, we were discussing about vocational education, and um, uh, my daughter was uh, started the school year with at MST. And, uh, you know, we were, we were, we were happy about that because we were hoping she was, you know, would learn a skill. Um, she has a disability. Um, it's seizure related, but she is reading at a, uh, fourth grade level. But anyways, what they were having her do was, um, she was working alongside with a, a child that is, uh, nonverbal and in a wheelchair. And, uh, Camille was just getting dirty football uniforms and uh, folding the clean ones and making popcorn. And that was her vocational education. And that is life skills. Until, until I can, now that wasn't life skills. Life skills was a separate class. So this was her, this was her MST portion, which took uh, a couple of periods in the morning. And, um, you know, I found out about this because she has a nurse because she has, a, you know, she has seizures. And the nurse told me what was going on and what she was doing. Otherwise, I would have no clue as to what is going on at that school. And so when I found out, I said, that's, you know, she's not getting anything from that. No. I mean, she can come home and, and fold laundry. This is, this is ridiculous. And she ended up getting pulled and, and put in an art class and um, another uh, a study period after that because it's just a waste of, of her time. Uh, so it's it's frustrating, you know, 
because a lot of the parents don't really know what their child is getting at the school and what is what is going on. So Ju- I guess I just wanted to chime in on that. Well, Judy, appreciate the call. Thank you very much. All right, thank and, you. And, and you know how to reach me if if you would like to have the situation with uh, Camille further addressed. Yeah, I mean we, you know, we. We have, but I do. Thank you very much, Rich. All right, that's Judy in Manchester. We're going to take a break for traffic, weather, and sports. We'll get Jane and Anne-Marie's reaction to Judy's call. And, oh, so much more. This break brought to us by the Concerned Taxpayers of Manchester. They've endorsed Manchester Mayor Ted Gatsis in his bid for re-election. They liked the answers he gave to their questionnaire. They didn't like so much that Joyce Craig refused to answer at all. And there are other folks that they're hoping will get elected to give the mayor some help in the things that he's been trying to do in Ward 5. That includes Lisa Freeman, the incumbent school board member running for re-election. And in Ward 6, it includes aldermanic candidate and um uh, Elizabeth Ann Moreau, I get too many Anns on my head, Elizabeth Ann Moreau, who uh, was just elected to the office in a special election in this past September, and John DePietro, who's running uh, for school board in Ward 6. Learn more about how the candidates answered the concerned uh, taxpayers of Manchester survey and which ones they chose to endorse by visiting concernedtaxpayersofmanchester.com.